Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. And I'm Laura Coates. This is CNN Tonight. And look, we are, what, 13 days away from the midterms? And now a second woman, this time a Jane Doe, is now claiming that Herschel Walker was involved in her abortion. She said she drove her to the clinic and waited in the parking lot for hours. He also caused the pregnancy, by the way. Well, that's like that's part add. of how the biology works. Right, and right. allegations. I mean, this is that birds and the bees course tonight as well. Yep. She says that she felt pressured to actually having the abortion. And for Herschel Walker, Allison, he says it's all a lie and that he didn't kill JFK either. Mm-hmm. And he's saying more tonight. But what will all of this mean to voters. Also tonight, we're going to talk about the fallout from the Fetterman-Oz debate last night. So Fetterman just shared his own thoughts on his performance just a short time Ooh. ago. So we'll play that and we'll yeah. find out um, if this hurt him with voters. I mean, social media, if that's an indication, we'll see. We can't always judge from that. No, we cannot. We, we can never judge from that. Let's say that. Let's get right to it right now. We've got CNN political commentator Anna Navarro. Also, Jim Messina, former Obama campaign manager. And CNN political commentator Scott Jennings all here. Glad to see you all tonight. You don't have any opinions, though. None of you collectively, right? No, no. So we're just going to, all right, let's, let's, let's go to commercial. What do you think? It's all over, right? Bunch of shrinking violets you've got around the table today. That's right. I'll start with you, the shrinkingness of the violets for a second, because I'm so glad to see you here. And I wonder what you made of all of it last night. I mean, I saw your tweet, and you talked about the humility, about the courage, about the idea of allowing people to show you through the process of healing. Um, take us into the political realm now. What does that translate to for voters? I think it's hard, though, to to separate the political realm from the human Mm. realm. 800,000, almost 800,000 Americans a year have a stroke. And I think, uh, you know, I know I know people I love who've had strokes. And one of the most frustrating, difficult, hard, sad things for them to have to do is wrestle with this idea that, you know, that initially as they're healing, if they they heal, is... um, that their words don't come out right mm. and that what they're thinking doesn't, they can't articulate. And so I, I do, you know, and I, I know how hard it's been for people I know, and I can only imagine what it's like to do it in public, to do it for the entire nation, to comment on. And so I do think that it takes a level of humility, of commitment, of honesty. And I think it's the right thing to do because voters deserve to have candidates debate. I also think of people, of other candidates who for much lesser reasons, have decided not to debate. He mm. could have refused to debate, right? Like Katie Hobbs in Arizona, who I think is handing the governorship to Carrie Lake. For not wanting to for debate? For not wanting to debate. Really? You know, for using the excuse that, oh, she's an election denier. Because on, a, Fetter- on, that, on Fetterman that point, Fetterman could though, have said, I'm not that, going to debate. Yeah. On that point, some have said, they should, she's taken an L. He should have just said, never mind, because it wouldn't have been worth it. The calculus like it was... hurt him. Yeah, you, you don't agree with that assessment. I think you, I think candidates owe voters transparency and owe voters the respect of debating issues and for voters to see what's out there. Right now, whatever decision the voters of Pennsylvania make, they make with an informed consciousness of what John Fetterman is going through and who Mehmet Oz is. Yeah, well, here's how he just explained it. So John Fetterman just explained what the experience was like for him. To be honest, doing that debate wasn't exactly easy, you know. Knew it, knew it wasn't going to be easy after, you know, having a stroke after five, uh, five months. In fact, in fact, in, in fact, I don't think that's ever been done before in American political history before, actually. 
I may not get every, every word the right way, but I will always do the right thing in Washington, D.C. Jim, do you think he hurt himself last night by doing that debate? Look, I think he lost the battle, but he may have won the war because of what Oz said on abortion. Um, I probably disagree with you. I don't think he should have done that debate. I wouldn't have counseled that. Um, I think it was a difficult night for him, and now he's on the defensive. That said, his campaign is masterful. They switched to exactly the topic they switched to, which was Oz's bizarre comments that local elected officials should decide abortion rights in Pennsylvania. That is going to be a huge problem for Oz in the in the swing places where women voters that you track all the time are trying to make a decision on this election. And I think if they stick to that message, Oz did himself real damage last night. Yeah. That said, we're all talking tonight about Fetterman's performance. And had he not done the debate, we wouldn't be doing that. But, I, you know, on the point, I want to dig into the idea of Dr. Oz's statements because he did try to make a distinction between, you know, he wouldn't first of all commit as to whether or not he would support Senator Lindsey Graham's 15-week ban if he were elected. He punted on that. He also had a moment when he talked about the federal government should not be involved, but state and local officials, women and their doctors. And that was the line, I think, that would draw out the concern of maybe suburban moms in particular and other, and other factors. But I am really curious about this idea. Do you really not think, had, had he not debated, would that have provided an opportunity for them to say, hold on, you've given two medical letters, you've told us you're fine, now you're not debating, something doesn't smell right. Would that have invited that level of skepticism? You look at him tonight in the clip you just showed, he looked good. He, yeah. that's, that's what we should be doing. He should be out there doing that in a, in a setting he can control on his own message. I mean, I just think that was a difficult time. I think the format was bad for him. 15-second answers. He didn't have time to kind of get his stuff together. Uh, I think the entire situation was very difficult uh, for this candidate, and I think it was avoidable. That said, I know why he did it. We all do, right? He had to get it off the table. He's mm -hmm. taken the advice. I understand the advice. I might have done different advice, but I really think long-term, Oz came out of this debate more wounded. Um, Scott, we heard your thoughts last night that you do think that it hurt Fetterman. Do you have any 24 hours, anything different? I agree. I wouldn't have counseled him to go out there either. I mean, he has difficulty having conversations with other people, and that's what a debate is. And his campaign knew his limitations before they sent him out there, and they did it anyway. So I think Jim is right. I mean, it's easier for him to give speeches when he's not having to interact with people, moderators or, or other candidates. On the abortion question, I fail to see the controversy here. Dr. Oz clearly said he would not support any federal regulations. He then said it should be left up to the states, which is a very standard issue Republican position. The Democratic position, I guess, based on what I'm hearing on the attacks today, is there should be no regulations, ergo no limits whatsoever, which is, by the way, what Fetterman's position is. He couldn't articulate one last night, and he hasn't articulated one for the campaign. I continue to believe the Democratic position on this is out of the mainstream. People are missing this. And by the way, if this is the issue you're closing yeah. on, the issue that's fallen to sixth or seventh on the list of most important issues, I question whether that's the right strategy. Well, Roe versus Wade was the mainstream and uh, the majority of Americans supported it, as I'm sure you know. Here's what he said. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local political leaders letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. So I think it was the, the wedging in of local political leaders with women and doctors. Well, well, who, I, who I runs see the, the government? Well, well, hold on. I, I do wonder, and that point you raise, and this idea, do you think that people really, I mean, if the, if the discussion is, excuse me, the discussion is that the Fed should not be involved, the government, right, as a big umbrella term, the government, do you think that there is the appreciation for why the 
federal government should not be involved, but the local government ought to be involved. If the general premise is stay out of these private discussions, I don't know how that made the case that, oh, this is different, this is better, because it's not even a standardized thing. What did you see? Uh, listen, maybe you don't get it, Scott, because you don't have a womb and ovaries, but I don't know any woman who would say, you know, we really want our state reps and our governor and our state senators to decide what we're going to do with our bodies. There's something that just is, that just doesn't pass the smell test, I think, for most women. I think that you think about counseling with yourself, with your family, with your doctor, with your pastor, with your priest, but the idea of my state senator and my state legislator and my, and my governor are going to decide what I do with my body. That doesn't, that that, doesn't sit well with is most Is that the women. advice you gave in your storied career as a Republican strategist? Dr. Oz is the pro-life candidate because he's a Republican. The Republican position is this is, ought to be left up to the states, which is exactly what he said last night. The Democratic position, your position, is that there shouldn't be any regulations of any kind from any government on abortion. And I don't think it's out of the mainstream. Think that, uh, you don't, don't know what my position right. on abortion yeah. is. You just said what it was. No, you don't know what my position is. Yeah, I, you don't know what mine is other than to insult me here on television. I'm not, telling you what I, your, I, I'm not telling you what your position is. I'm telling you that most women, that you don't have a womb, and that most women don't want to hear that elected poli- uh, political leaders, that their state legislators are going to mandate what they have to do. I don't care what your position is. Uh, listen, You're not making the decision. We can have this Neither conversation, obviously, without insulting each other. Um, I do think we have to. It, it's amazing that we haven't yet touched on Herschel Walker because <laughs> right. we're so is true. exhausted by it, I think. Like, what more is there to say? There's another woman who has come forward. It's, I find it not implausible that there would be another woman because he doesn't have a great track record of any of this. And he just continues to say it's a lie. Jim, do you think that any of this at this point matters or there's just such saturation level? With no, I do things? think it matters because we're sitting here 13 days. People are voting every single day. They're getting their ballots. And it's unbelievable that he's on the defense on this again. And he's lied repeatedly. He lied to his own campaign staff about it. Now there's another woman. He needs to close on an economic argument. All of us at this table would advise him to close and try to make that. And instead, he's talking about another issue. He's lying again. Another woman that puts him on the uh, on the defense with his own base, right? He's trying to turn out Republicans. He's doing almost 10 points worse than Governor Kemp. He's got to close with the Republicans, and this is not helpful. I do think this is damaging him, absolutely. But is it the Governor <laughs> Kemp that we compare to in this point? And I think just the larger point, which is interesting, the discussion that you two are having here about... Yeah, I, I didn't know telling about, him he didn't have a womb was an offense. Well, <laughs> I mean, the fact... I, I didn't know we were I, all I, biologists I, now. Well, yeah. let me tell you, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the biology of who has a woman who does not at this table. I know I've given birth twice. But I'm going to tell you, um, when you think about it, you are having a discussion and the, and the nation's having a discussion about agency and autonomy over a woman's body and abortion policy. Georgia is having a discussion over whether a specific candidate financed an abortion. I wonder if the disconnect in terms of why this is making still a, a close race for Warnock and Walker is that people think that maybe the, the, the main national discussion is not what's being had in Georgia. Because is that why Walker is still close? 
No, Walker's still close because George is still a leaning Republican state. And he's got a cop of the ticket governor who's winning by, you know, a significant amount. And this is a very, very close state. It's a state that Democrats have only won statewide once in the past 30 years in a presidential level. Mm-hmm. So any Republican had Scott's party nominated anyone with a heartbeat, this thing would be much more difficult. Thankfully for me, they nominated Herschel Walker, who's the, the worst re- the candidate. The reason Walker is so close is because I think uh, most Republicans have decided that this is a state that can decide who's going to be running the Senate, and thus character matters a lot less, and hypocrisy matters a lot less than that. And they've who's said going that. To I, mean, the they've said that. I, I don't think that's how swing voters think about it, though. People in D.C. think about this, but swing voters, you know this, they care about the economy, they care about how the future of their kids, they're not thinking about Herschel Walker controlling the United States Senate. Let me just, it's October the 26th. We are less than two weeks before an election. Mm-hmm. Gloria Allred... So you, so you doubt it. You actually doubt well, listen, this, Scott. You, you just, trust. You, I, I, hold on. Just answer this. You trust Herschel Walker. Do I trust him? Yeah. Yeah, I trust Herschel Walker. You trust. Do his, I trust him more than Gloria Allred? Yeah. You I trust do. his word that he knows nothing about this. He doesn't even know these women, though one of them had his child. I don't trust things that happened in the last two weeks of an election from Gloria Allred with an anonymous whatever. And by the way, if Democrats are in, in uh, interested in sex stuff from 1992, have I got a story to tell them about what happened in the 1990s. This is a late October. No Republican or independent conservative-leaning voter in Georgia is going to take a two, you know, within two-week anonymous allegation seriously. In fact, I'd say Republicans are going to view it as a pile-on, and it is not going to hurt Herschel Walker. But that's not all there is, though, right? There's, I mean, it's the it's the cumulative. This is the the point that's is exactly that it's the, right. it's the latest in a string. Does that have an impact? We'll talk more about this. Oh, okay. Let's Don't do that. Yeah. Hold that thought. Hold that thought, everyone. We uh, actually want to know more from you, right? Yeah. Tell us what you think about Herschel Walker and John Fetterman. And anything else you want to weigh in on, you can tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. We'll be right back. John Fetterman admitting tonight to supporters the difficulty he had in the debate against Mehmet Oz. He said it wasn't easy. So let's bring in Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who has a unique perspective on Fetterman's recovery. She's a neuroscientist and the author of Whole Brain Living, and she herself is also a stroke survivor. Uh, Dr. Taylor, thanks so much for being here. Um, You really will give us insight from all angles on, on what this is like. And so what did you think while you were watching John Fetterman last night? You know, when I watch anybody, I think in terms of cell circuits, underlying abilities, I think he, I think we could have done a much better job at setting his brain up for success in that kind of a situation. How? Um, Well, I mean, just think about if he's having a problem hearing, and so essentially he hears sound, it drops and then he catches on to that meaning. He's reading the meaning. He's got all this stimulation. It's an extremely stressful experience for any brain. And on top of that, you have an opponent who is kind of constantly poking at you. And we don't know if he can actually read what Dr. Yaz is communicating to him. And then he has to read all of this, process that information. And he's on a 30 
a 30-second timetable. I mean, I just really, I felt so, as soon as I heard what the format was, I felt complete sympathy for him. But what what else? I mean, he had he had closed captioning. So as you say, he was reading um, what the uh, moderator's questions were. And I believe he was reading what um, Mehmet Oz's responses were, though his team has said that there were technical difficulties with the closed captioning. Yeah. Don't know if that's true or not true. But what could he yeah. how could he have done a debate with having suffered a stroke so recently? You know, I think I think we have to reevaluate what actually do we call a debate these days, because the debate these days is very different from five years ago politics versus 10 years ago politics. And there is a new not just anxiety, but level of hostility that comes in. We as human beings are feeling creatures who think. Information comes in through all of our sensory systems. This is what John Fetterman was up against. Information coming in through all the sensory systems, it processes through our emotional systems, and then it moves into our thinking circuitry. So thinking takes time, and we all think all, as normal brains, if some of us think more quickly than others. And a brain that is processing quickly isn't necessarily more accurate or more precise mm-hmm. in the answers that it delivers. Mm-hmm. And I just think that there was a lot of confusion and we could have done a, mm-hmm. a better job in helping. John, be better. But let me ask you about that, because there's a question about whether or not he was having word finding difficulties because of his auditory processing or if he's struggling really with cognition, um, which, you know, would yeah. obviously affect the job. And so what's the right. answer? Well, well, I think that I think that you don't ask the question, are you having a problem with this? Are you cognitively competent? I think what you do is you go to situations when he has proven himself to be completely cognitively competent in a situation that really allowed for him to take the extra time that he needed to be able to consider to and then in order to give uh, responsible and accurate answers. And he has done that in recent interviews where it wasn't such a high stress, high pressure experience. Mm. Sometimes. I mean, he's also had an experience in an interview where the interviewer said that he she felt that he was struggling to respond and to answer. But I want to ask you about your experience and how it informs well, all let of me this. Go back to that, if I may. Yeah, quickly. May I address that? Yeah, please. I watched that. That was the NBC interview. And I felt that he was delivering information to her but she, about his cognition and how he thinks and how accurate he was thinking. But because she didn't understand what she was looking for, she came directly in the question of it instead of observing that he was actually giving her appropriate responses. So I don't think I don't I think it's tough when a public that doesn't really understand what is cognition how is it processed inside of the brain? What are the most the multiple pieces of cognition that work together in order for someone to have a bigger conception so that they actually can understand information and have a, uh, appropriate output? Yeah, well, I mean, this will shock you, but not all of us reporters are neuroscientists like you um, when we're doing the... Well, I, know, I, know I know it's shocking, but, but, I, but, but Dr. I, in, in all seriousness, I do want to ask you this before I let you go. Yeah. Um, I know you had a more severe stroke than he did. And I know it took you a long time to recover. Is there any telling from your experience how long it would take him to recover and, you know, be back to 100 percent? 
Well, when I look at what his brain was able to do on an interview on September 14th, um, he was able to uh, think, uh, he was able to remember uh, far away, far by in the back, he uh, in past in time, he was able to remember the day before the events that had happened. He was able to project his himself into the future. Uh, he was able to, there were just all these different stages of cognition that he's capable of doing. And I think that that instead of simply saying, is he able to cognate, let's look at the, the man and look at what he is doing and focus on the ability, recognizing that the disability is there. And then how long will it take for him to recover I can't speak to that. I haven't I haven't spoken to the man about this. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, thank you very much for your expertise and, and sharing your uh, your story with us, too. Thank you. OK, so she's obviously operating at a different level than we are in terms of what she sees. But it's what voters see. And if they think that he's up to the job after last night, I can't help but think, I mean, what she described, certainly completely relevant. And I don't want to take away anything, anything of it. But she describes a level of patience and political grace that 13 days before a midterm election honestly do. And I can't help but think, is this the calculus that would be used for a sitting senator like Chris Van Hollen, like Ray Lujan, who both who this strokes. year yeah. suffered strokes, one recovered, um, we both recovering, but one came back right after, what, a month after having a stroke into the Not Senate, sure. right before the vote for um, a Supreme Court justice. And so you, I wonder if it's a different calculus for voters, the one who is in office versus one who's striving to be. Probably. We'll see. Look, either way, as well, maybe you heard this phrase, this is not your father's GOP. Well, that's what Joe Biden is saying today. But you wonder, what will that message mean come, well, the next 13 days? It's called midterms. I've heard of it. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, reminder, it's just 13 days away. I feel like 13 days away. A lot. I, I feel like the world is reminded us a lot I of agree. the midterm elections. We're yes. weeks away, we're days away, we're not 13 days away. But we're counting the votes across the country. And it could all come down to the answers to some, well, really important questions. Like, how much will election denialism rear its ugly head with deniers running? successfully so far across the country. And what's the future of the Republican Party, especially in a state like Florida that was once purple, now getting redder and redder and redder? And where do Latino voters land in all of this? Back with us now, Ana Navarro, Jim Messina, and Scott Jennings. You know, we look at this, the idea of um, the coveted demographics and who is, who are the undecided voters, the independent voters, Republicans, Democrats, all across the spectrum. There is a an emphasis in particular on Latino voters in Florida, per se, where they've got a coalition in terms of rural voters and Latino voters in particular in a state where everyone's watching to see where things are going to go now in 2024. What's your take in terms of what this last 13 day, say that again, <laughs> these last 13 days, what's the focus? Well, 13 days is not going to, I don't think, make much of a difference with Latino voters or any particular group, because that's one of the problems mm. that you can't just remember a particular group 
13 days away or 13 weeks away. You've got to remember them the whole four years. And that's a, a constant complaint. Look, with Latino voters, I think there's so many different things going on. First of all, I have to tell you, Republicans in Florida, Republicans nationally, have laser focus on Latinos in Miami-Dade County, where I live, Latinos in the Rio Grande Valley, and they've done a good job of it. And what are they offering them that that is so appealing to um, Latino voters there? Attention. Mm. Uh, They're offering them um, free citizenship clinics. So, you know, if you want to become a citizen, the RNC is actually sponsoring uh, clinics. They're also offering um, some candidates that actually pay them attention and cater to them. Listen, Ron DeSantis has a a Cuban-American lieutenant governor, right? And uh, goes down to Miami and talks about Cuba and talks about Venezuela and talks about all these things constantly. Yes, he also schlepped a bunch of Venezuelan uh, political asylee applicants to Martha's Vineyard. And how did that play with Latinos in Florida? Apparently, to my shock, uh, less badly than I would have thought and hoped. Uh, It didn't play well in my household, But I can tell you that I think a lot of people um, seem to be okay with it. And it's, you know, it's the same. I think it's the same concept. And also, listen, Democrats have done a really bad job in Florida in providing good candidates. The guy they're running for governor against Ron DeSantis is a recycled has-been who was a Republican, a independent, Mm. and a Democrat. And so how in the world do you want people to get enthused about that? And, and, you know, and, I, and I think Democrats have to look at themselves because I think they pretty much, if it feels as a Floridian, like Florida, like Democrats have given up on, on Florida. Mm. And, and one last thing that I want to say that I think people are picking up on, and we saw it in the last couple of weeks. Last couple of weeks, we saw what happened in L.A. County, where there were Latino members of the county, mm-hmm. of the county commission, talking about the division, saying some really racist things. Yeah against African-Americans. And I think there is an unspoken division and competition that Republicans are seizing on and exploiting to make, to make minority groups pit them against each other and make them compete for the small piece of pie. Well, I mean, when you think about yeah. the idea of the rejection of the monolith, when you paint such a broad stroke mm-hmm. and suggest, oh, people of color want this, without the nuances you're talking about, it similarly can be what the woman voter wants. It can be those issues you talk about. Yeah, but Jim, do you think that Democrats are screwing up with Latinos? Um, I do, but I think it's different. I want to agree with what you said about this. There are places in America, first of all, there's no Latino vote. We're talking about different states, different demographics, Venezuelans, Costa Ricans, Cubans, all of these things. And then you look at it, there are places like Florida and Texas where the Republican Party has been very smart, where they've reached out with candidates, they haven't demagogues, they haven't played race cards, they've been very careful. But then you look at places where they're absolutely on the defense, mostly in the West, in California, in Arizona, in New Mexico, which used to be Republican states, at least New Mexico and, and uh, Arizona, and are now Democratic states because Latino voters are walking away in mass to them because the local candidates there have said crazy stuff that you were just talking about. They have crazy sheriffs who've run forever in Arizona doing racist stuff. That just drove them to the modern-day Democratic Party. The Democrats are having a struggle internally about whether or not we're going to be PC and say all these great things and call them Latinxes and all this stuff, or we're actually going to talk to the voters about things they really care about, like economy and education and things that every other voter cares about. Maybe Democrats should do that one, the latter. Yeah, the latter. That's well, you exactly almost get the right. impression, though, I mean, 
speaking of how people conflate issues, the assumptions that are made, the assumption is that if you focus on immigration, then you will be, by design, have the Latino vote without acknowledging there is a distinction, right? The idea of thinking which countries we're talking about, those who are citizens, those who are seeking a pathway to citizenship, the assumption that immigration policy equals the only or the top issue for Latino voters is a dangerous assumption to make based on the, t- the notion of even sending to Martha's Vineyard. But you were sort of nodding along just oh, now I, and you just in disagreement. Uh, no, I totally, everything she said, I totally agree with. Listen, wait, wait. Oh my God, breaking news. Somebody please, <laughs> wait CNN breaking news, bring back the banner. We build bridges here. No, I, 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 I love I, this moment. I, I, I want to let it linger. Can we, can we let it It's not going to last long, but go <laughs> ahead. No, I, look, I think Republicans are rolling in Florida largely because of the outreach uh, uh, that she was talking about that the Republicans have done. And I think the Republican office holders down there have started to treat Latin, uh, Latino voters, Hispanic voters, like they're every other American that has concerns that are broader than just immigration reform. I think when you get in trouble in politics is when you say you have a certain identity characteristic, therefore you are only allowed to care about mm. this issue that I associate with your identity. So if you're a female voter and I tell you, you're only allowed to care about abortion. Well, what if there are independent women that also care about, I don't know, inflation? You're, you're leaving yourself out of that debate. I think that's what Democrats have done with Latino voters in Florida and Texas. I don't agree with Jim about Arizona. It looks to me like Republicans are probably going to win the governor's race uh, in Arizona. And according to some polling, Masters is, is close to Kelly. I don't know if he's going to win, but it's, it's a Do very good money on that race. Do I want to bet money? Yeah. Go ahead, no. guys. Let's start right here. <laughs> I mean, you like, want to bet money on the governor's you're, race? You're, you're just holding the Republican line. Everything you've said tonight, let, let's be in the middle and talk about. So Arizona is a great example. That wasn't even on the battlefield when you were in the White House or I was in the White House. Now Democrats are winning presidential elections. They have both Senate seats. And you're saying they're doing well with Latino voters? Scott, enough with the talking points. I, I'm saying that in, are you saying that the Democrat candidate for governor is currently doing well in Arizona? No, I'm saying the Democrats have won the presidential and both Senate seats. I'm not since disagreeing with there. you. And, I'm saying and, in but this election. But you just said they were driving the, the Latino votes this, to, to the Democrats. In, in this are you election, saying Mark Kelly's not going to win the U.S. Senate race? I don't know. It's close race. I'm saying in this election, Republicans in many states, most states are doing far better with Hispanic voters than we usually do. There is a clear movement in the polling and in some of the races that have already occurred this year of Hispanic voters choosing Republicans. That's an absolute fact. So clear major- So they're winning a majority? No, I said, voters? I said there's a movement towards Republicans, not a majority. I said there's a movement beyond what we normally get. Come on, man. You, are you disagreeing? It is a, it is a fact that no, Republicans have done better with Hispanics. In, in Arizona, really? So I you've think, lost every statewide race in the past five years, and you're doing better with Latino voters. Scott, come on, enough with the talking I, I feel, points. I feel like I feel like your debate with are, Carl are, Rove that are, you had before you came here, like your ears are clogged. No, I, I, I'm, I'm telling just concerned you, that the RNC gave you the talking points, and now you can't shift. I tell you what, man. Do you have a single friend? Guys, <laughs> absolute guys. Jerk. Well, guys, oh. stop. I'm sorry. I don't. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't come on here and read talking points. You know me, and you know me, and you. I don't come on here and re-talk. I, I don't even know but, you. And you've come out here and insulted. But the ad hominem attacks. Let's just... I, 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 agree. I don't want to be accused okay. of right. re-talking right. points. It is, it is an there. absolute fact. Republicans are doing somewhat better with Hispanics. She laid it out. I agreed with that. Right. And it's the truth. And her name is Anna. Well, here, listen, here's the thing. Wait, can we just say, there's really no need to bet, is there? Because in 13 days... Oh. In and already days. 12 million votes. Well, I mean, in thir- I'm just saying, in 13 um, days, we can, we can opine and pontificate look, and prognosticate... Or we can wait and see what the voters of Arizona actually tell us, and we're going to get there soon. I mean, obviously, things are getting spicy everywhere. Everywhere. 
I mean, this is th- these conversations are happening everywhere. I like what you did there. Spicy, Spicy. Latino, the yep. thing. You know, yeah, you, it, can, you it, could tell when Democrats are, are feeling the pressure in an election, they start insulting her. Okay, stop. Oh, yeah. I, I just turned it. Can we go back to that pretty moment, the movement machine, when yeah. you, you two said, I agree with everything that was said. <laughs> she was right. I will just she, was our, she was oh dead on it in Florida, 100%. All right, we're pivoting right yeah. now uh, to another story because the Washington Post is out with a new analysis of the NFL, and they've come to the conclusion that the league uses black coaches when they need to clean up teams' messes. Mm. We'll explain. The NFL still has a lot of work to do when it comes to hiring black coaches, but a new analysis from the Washington Post shows that NFL teams often turn to black coaches to serve as interim leaders when the teams are in crisis. Since 1990, just three out of 14 black interim coaches were offered a permanent role. That compares to 10 out of 32 white interim coaches who were promoted to a permanent position. But you were telling me, Laura, that it's often the black coaches have a better record. Yeah, remember like the Hunger Games, where the odds were ever in your favor? Mm -hmm. The odds ought to have been in the favor of the coaches that had a more than 500 record win, right? And instead, the stats are, you know, of the white interim coaches you had, they had promotions with a 0.361 winning record as compared to the black coaches over 500 or more. And so you've got this idea here building about the Rooney rule, which is essentially you've got to give somebody a chance and actually have diverse hirings. And you've got the glass cliff. And it's why we have this panel here today, because the glass cliff, including a former NFLer who will be much more well-versed in all this than all of us here. So let's bring it in Anna Navarro again. We also have former NFL player Dante Stallworth, who we love having here, and Scott Jennings is also back with us. Okay, Dante, so the glass cliff um, that Laura was just referring to is basically clean up on aisle nine is needed. Let's get the black coach in here to do it. I mean, am I, is that, am I explaining it right? Yeah, it, it seems that way. And when you look at uh, the way that the NFL has uh, had its hiring practices over the last couple of decades. They've tried, uh, at least I should say the league office has tried to make these amendments to the Rooney Rule that where uh, you have to interview more black uh, coaches, more minority coaches. But we've seen time and time again where when you when you are doing that pickup on aisle nine, you know, it's it's not the coaches that that have had these teams. Right. It's they're, they're picking up from the other from their head coach's job. And I think that when we kind of get lost into the weeds of of how this happens, where you know the the coaches that are coming on interim uh, coaching, they're not they're they're not able to instill their philosophy. They're not able to uh, you know bring in the players that they want through drafts and through free agency. So they're essentially picking up someone else's mess and told here hold this together for us while we figure out what we're going to do for the and, future. And they're set up for failure, right? I mean the idea and that's part of the frustration that so many have had. There's a class action suit as we know involving two black coaches as well, one in Florida, you know, and Steve Wilkes as well. And it, you, you think about the how this is going. I mean, the whole premise of the glass cliff is you never had a chance. We brought you in because everything was problematic. And to give the illusory chance that you could fill the role, we'll put you there. But permanent coaches, forget about it. And this is a league, which is constantly an issue. You've got, what, 70% of the players black, 13% of the, of the coaches in all categories black over time. This is, is it a coincidence? Uh, you know what? You, you can't argue with the data, right? I think there are there are well-meaning people that are making these decisions in the NFL uh, at times where they don't they don't necessarily know that these this is what's happening. But when you look at the data, you can't refute that empirical evidence. So 
Uh, I think that's why the league office has really tried to push the owners. Ultimately, it's the owner's decision who they hire and fire. So the NFL can, you know, put the Rooney rule in. They can make all the amendments they want. But at the end of the day, it's the owners that have the, the hiring power in the NFL. What's wrong, son? Why no, not, I have a question. Um, in some of these <clears throat> difficult situations, is it possible that some of the interim coaches that are brought in, like when you're brought in to handle a crisis or a huge mess and you do a terrific job, is this... Is there a, a potential silver lining to be hired into one of those situations because you, it turns out you're a masterful leader and you're able to handle a crisis and run a team at the same time? I don't know of any situations where that panned out for somebody, but it, in your experience, has that ever been the possibility where someone got dropped into a mess and turned out to be a total genius? Uh, it, it has happened. I can't speak to exactly which coaches, but it's happened a few times, but it's, it's very rare. And, and, I, and again, I think it's rare because you're whenever the coach is, is fired, I mean, it's, it's been usually total dysfunction. So uh, you just look at what happened with the Carolina Panthers. They traded away one of the best players their franchise has ever had. So that signals to the rest of the team that we are playing for the future. We're not trying to win anymore. Uh, or we're not, we're, not, we're not looking towards winning the Super Bowl this year. We are planning for the future. So they've brought in Steve Wilkes. Uh, the only thing I can say about that is that sometimes when they do hire these interim coaches, uh, the head coach has the, has the option to have an assistant head coach. And sometimes that assistant head coach, uh, again, which is the head coach's decision, it's his decision to hire that assistant head coach to, to come in. And sometimes it is, but sometimes the owner will, will step in and make the final decision of who they want the interim head coach to be. Mm. Such an important don't, point. Don't even look at me. Okay. This entire conversation <laughs> has my palms sweating. I'm, I have like Anderson Cooper level of sports <laughs> knowledge, and particularly. But I mean, I, I do. I, you know, I did hear about the Brian Flores issue because yep. it was talked about in my house. But that's all I know. Are you that his name is Anderson Brian Flores. Under the bus? I'm enjoying this. You're throwing Anderson. Have you ever sports- seen Anderson? I mean, Anderson talks about this. He's he's he com- he confesses it. That's right. I thought that I held the record at CNN for knowing the least about sports, but maybe it's Anderson. No, it's me. It's it's me. (laughs) Great. Well, all I tell you is I'm so glad, Dante, you brought this in this discussion as well and have it contributed because we keep talking about coaches, but it's also offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators. It's not just the head coach, the 32 closed universe of facts. And this is such a relatable issue outside of the world of football in corporate America and other instances it's women, people of color in particular as well, and this glass cliff. So if you didn't know about it, well, now you know. And we want to know what you think out there as well. Is the NFL using black coaches to clean up teams' messes? Have you heard about the glass cliff? Do you have your own experience as well? Tweet us at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Codes. Use the hashtag CNN Sound Off. There's stunning new video out of Iran, thousands of protesters ignoring government road closures and walking to the gravesite of Masa Amini. They're marking 40 days since the 22-year-old Iranian woman died after being detained by so-called morality police for allegedly failing to observe the country's strict dress code. Her death sparked a wave of protests throughout the country, and today the U.S. announced new sanctions against Iranian officials for their brutal crackdown on those protesters. I'm just watching the uh, video there because it's been astounding. 40 days and the outrage hasn't died down. The protests haven't died down. And today, apparently the security forces told her family not to mark the 40-day, you know, commemorative of her death. Which is an important moment for Iranian and um, Islamic faith. The idea of thinking about the 40-day, that means something very significant as to why this. And they wouldn't let her family march with them. They threatened her brother with arrest. Hmm. So it is, the tension is not getting better. 
And obviously, people are not going back to their homes as the security forces are threatening them. You know, the laws there, they don't have a ban for the government to be able to shut down um, engagement in ceremonies, even under a pretextual reason of safety and security concerns. Mm-hmm. So the idea of what's really happening, did the family actually plan not to celebrate? It's, it's a lot. And we're still thinking of her and the protests in Iran. Yeah, we'll keep staying on this story, of course. All right, back here. If all politics are local, does that mean that extremism is now local also? We're going to look at the local threats to disrupt elections. And we have some incredible examples to show you. With less than two weeks to go until the midterms. I keep saying it's 13 (laughs) days. I'm telling you, it's 13 days, people. 13 days, the midterm elections. Really, Two weeks from today, we'll know a lot more. So maybe it's still 14. Okay, I'm just saying. Anyway, I'll move on. The midterms are coming in 13 days. and You've got mayors and law enforcement officials who are getting a new warning, sadly, about election intimidation. You've got extremists who are looking to disrupt the midterms at the local level, targeting voters, targeting candidates, targeting election workers, all according to Axios. Okay, let's bring in our panel. We have CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, New York Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones, and CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. So this is so disturbing, guys. Obviously, we think when we think of extremism, I think we think in terms of, you know, January 6th, the insurrection, something on a national scale. Locally, there are all sorts of examples of people being intimidated and just awful things happening. Here are a few examples. Again, this comes from Axios. In 50 out of 67 Pennsylvania counties, election chiefs have left because of threats, harassment, and intimidation. In Idaho, protesters hung an effigy at a Republican candidate's home. A Democratic candidate in eastern Washington state was shot with a BB gun while putting up campaign signs. These are just a few examples. Um, Congressman, it's so, I mean, being in politics, I don't have to tell Mm. you, is a real blood sport now, and it's really scary what's happening around uh, before the midterms. It is, and we see most of the political violence aimed by the right wing towards liberal or progressive members of Congress and, of course, down the ballot at the, at the state and local level. Uh, this is not the first set of examples of this. We saw Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional mm-hmm. Progressive Caucus, uh, nearly be harmed by someone who was standing outside of her home waving a gun around. Of course, we saw what happened on January 6th, and there are so many examples in between and this is something, especially in the, ter- in the context of elections, that is part of a strategy by the GOP to intimidate, in particular, Democratic-leaning voters uh, against, you know, casting, the, exercising their constitutional rights. But right there are vote. examples of Republicans also being intimidated and harassed. I would like to hear more about that. I think at this point, there's only one major political party that is pro-democracy and that's trying to have safe and secure elections. Yeah. Let me tell you, that, that, but the impact of this is not like a theor- theoretical and esoteric debate. That's really the, you hear about democracy in peril as an overarching theme. But we're talking about election offices that are now ha- having bulletproof glass. They are having, you know, um, ma- you know, active shooter training in recognition of this. People leaving and saying, look, I'm, I'm not, this is not worth it. The idea of thinking about it's not worth it to man these election booths or election workers for those reasons. I mean, you even have uh, Chief Ramsey, who was an advisor to the um, Conference of Mayors, saying, look, I suggest you prioritize your 911 calls to the election booths mm-hmm. on these days. 
knowing what crime is like right now. I mean, this is what we're, what we're after. Look, this is not the same country it was six years ago when Donald Trump, seven years ago when Donald Trump came down the escalator. I mean, there are isolated examples of conservative politicians being targeted by liberal critics. But as a mass phenomenon, we are talking about the manifestation of election denialism in the Republican Party being operationalized uh, in a lot of different ways. Some of it is laws making it tougher to vote. But now we are seeing it as well uh, in this systematic harassment that is developing. I mean, though the, the, the images of those men in tactical gear with automatic weapons surveilling a drop box and questioning voters as they, you know, exercise their constitutional rights is a symbol of where this is potentially uh, going unless law enforcement and prosecutors at all level can make a really strong statement. I mean, we were talking two thirds to three quarters of Republican voters say they believe the 2020 election was stolen. Joe Biden is Ill illegitimate president. That is tens of millions of people. 55% of Republican voters consistently say in polls that the traditional way of American life is disappearing so fast, we may have to use force to save it. Mm. That is tens of millions of people. Now, only a small fraction of them may act on those sentiments in an inappropriate way, but that is still a large number of people. And unless the signals become more clear, the kinds of threats that you're talking about are going to become more routine in our political life than we have seen at any point since probably Reconstruction. So, John, what the point is, though, I mean, look, law enforcement has a role to play, right? If there is a threat, if, if crime obviously is on the rise in many places, but if there is a real and clear and present danger on Election Day, what's being done to prepare for it? Well, I think first you're seeing threat reporting. One of the things we did not see, and we talked about that at this table one night not long ago before January 6th was a threat assessment for January 6th for the certification of the vote, despite all the intel that was coming in that there was going to be large crowds, mm -hmm. armed crowds, militias, white supremacists. Uh, so you're going to see a threat assessment uh, for Election Day, uh, probably a joint seal piece from the uh, DHS and the FBI, but I also think you'll see a threat stream coming through. So first thing is, we're already seeing a heightened awareness by the reporting we're looking at now. Second thing is, you're going to see coordination with law enforcement agencies and police departments. But as, as was just pointed out, this is not your father's election or even our election from not that long ago. You know, we used to have this system where we'd count the votes up overnight and then you'd wake up in the morning and find out who won. The new system, and this isn't a secret operation. This is where Steve Bannon went on his podcast with Dan Schultz, and they laid this out. And you have to separate a couple of things here, uh, which is get jobs as poll watchers. Set up, you know, videotape everything, collect and keep those tapes. Even if it doesn't look like something, if we don't like the result, we can pull out all the tapes and say we have tapes. Get jobs better not as poll watchers, but poll workers. Mm -hmm. Because when you get those jobs, you have more power, more access, more things you can do to step in or interfere or, or, or move things. Um, focusing on elections for things like district attorneys right. and secretaries of state. And states. they're doing that. It's yeah. all so, happening. Yeah. As so you say, is, like Steve Bannon laid it out, laid out the playbook. It's all happening. And there's nothing that law enforcement can do about those things. I mean, it's certainly not poll watchers. How about Congress? I mean, at, I mean, honestly, at, think about it. Look at those places where they're sitting there with, in states with open carry laws. That's right. Where the poll watchers are watching with weapons. Um, 
But John, That's I, mean, I, but I, I turn though to, I mean, we're, we have a member of Congress here on the idea of what January 6th was intended to do, which is in part to look into what led up to, and your point is well taken, the idea of the, the potential to repeat and maybe even go beyond some things we saw. Is this just on local law enforcement to do something about this? No, it's not. And in fact, there was a bill called the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act, which I was proud to co-author, that passed the House, but because of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin mm. and unanimous opposition from the GOP, did not pass. One of the provisions in that that's not talked about nearly as much as other provisions is that it would criminalize the intimidation of poll workers and also create a private right of action for those poll workers to then sue in court, uh, in addition to empowering the Attorney General of the United States to combat the misinformation or disinformation that oftentimes motivates the intimidation that we are seeing. And I want to add something to what John was saying earlier. You know, this didn't just start because of an increase in, in voting by mail. I mean, if, if there had been only in-person voting in connection with the 2020 presidential election, uh, my Republican colleagues and the standard bearer of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, would still be pushing the big lie that has oftentimes led to the incidents that you were talking about, Allison. Yes, and also, I just want to say one more thing. that If, if we start to think of January 6th as a dry run, mm-hmm. it, it feels as though, Congressman, just as you've just outlined, we haven't put in the guardrails to fix it for the midterms or for the next presidential race. I mean, that's what we could have spent the past two years doing, but it sounds like we've not done that. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the things that people have been working on. I mean, there's... Uh, an attempt to reform the Electoral Count yes, Act. Yes, I keep hearing Ooh. about the Electoral Count Act, but that's not going to fix all of this you stuff. You mean the short run versus the long term. And, and, right? and, in, and yeah. indeed, you, you can't address all behavior through legislation. Right. I, I mean, that's why it's so important to have real leadership in Congress and in other elected offices uh, and on television. And we are not seeing that from one side of the political can, spectrum. Can, can I add on that? I mean, right. I mean, you, you could have had the provisions in H.R. 1 that the congressman was talking about. Uh, John Ossoff worked on about, about protecting uh, election workers. Uh, you can have all sorts of safeguards in the Electoral, electoral Count Act. Uh, but as long as you have uh, a huge number of people who have been convinced that this election was stolen... And when you when you don't have a clear statement from the leaders of that party that, A, the election wasn't stolen and B, that the use of violence to advance political goals is always wrong. You know, I remember talking to Elizabeth Newman, who was the assistant secretary for the for these kind of threats at DHS under Donald Trump, who said the most important thing in turning off this cycle of violence are clear messages from the political leaders of the movement saying is it is unacceptable. Mm. And when you have, you know, Trump talking about the January 6th, the people in jail essentially as political prisoners or other Republicans minimizing what happened that day, that is the opposite message. Law enforcement and even uh, legislation is not going to be able to turn back this dial without a clear, unequivocal message. And we are just not getting that. Well, have you guys heard about this constitutional sheriff's movement? It's this fringe group that believes that local sheriffs have absolute power over elections. And to me, I put it under the category, John, of election vigilantism, like what we're seeing in places like Mesa, Arizona and beyond. Are you concerned? Because as as Ron's talking about, um, the idea of a, a leader being able to shut it off, for some people, we might be beyond the idea mm. of turning that switch, flipping that switch, particularly in vigilantism. What are the concerns that you have about that? So we are in the most brittle political time um, in America in a couple of generations. But 
sheriffs are unique in law enforcement in America because they're elected, which usually means they are a member of one party or another. And sometimes from county to county, this sheriff will be Republican and that one will be a Democrat. Um, but they're also the chief law enforcement officer of that county. And the more rural you get, the more the sheriff is the police, as opposed to small police departments with a county sheriff. So that's one concern. Um, the sheriffs are already in politics to get their jobs. And the expectation is that once you're elected as sheriff, politics goes aside and you go by your oath to enforce the law. How's that working out every time? Well, so this, <laughs> this, this is going to be um, uncomfortable with this constitutional sheriff's uh, business, and we'll have to watch that closely. I'll tell you the other dirty little secret is cops hate Election Day because what, when people start fighting at the polls, you were too close, you broke the rules, you did this, no matter which way the officer who's on the scene goes, they're either going to say, well, you're a, secretly a Trumpy, mm. or you're a tool of the government, or you're... So it's, um, it's very uncomfortable for them, but I think in this election, you're going you're gonna to see a lot of law enforcement presence as a deterrent. Wow. Thank you, about. gentlemen. Frightening. I mean, it really is, and, and we're 13 days away. <laughs> 13 days yeah. in October. I, I'm just saying, 13, someone, I'm 13 just, days right? in October, as Bobby Kennedy once yeah. said. Uh, well, look, speaking of, well, a correlation of politics and crime, frankly, I mean, a Wisconsin man was found guilty today of killing six people with an SUV at a Christmas parade last year. Why is this somehow being used politically? Well, there's an attack ad, and a lot of it's being used to target Mandela Barnes, who's running for Senate from Wisconsin, and a larger issue about Democrats on crime. The man who drove an SUV into the Waukesha Christmas Parade was found guilty today of six counts of intentional homicide. 40-year-old Daryl Brooks now faces a mandatory sentence of life in prison. But the horrific Waukesha attack has now also become a hammer for Republicans trying to portray Democratic Senate nominee Mandela Barnes' week on crime. When criminals are released because bail is set dangerously low. Tragedy in Waukesha. An SUV plows through the city's Christmas parade. Six people were killed and dozens more injured. Brooks was freed from jail on $1,000 bail. Mandela Barnes wants to end cash bail completely. He wrote the bill. Barnes still wants to end cash bail today. Mandela Barnes, not just a Democrat. Every time I see the footage of that awful. Parade, I take my kids to the Christmas parades all the time. It's unbelievable to see. Well, the Milwaukee DA said last year that Brooks was given a low bail as a result of human error. And a 2021 CNN fact check has found that bail reform is not clearly linked to a recent spike in crime. We're back now discussing with John Miller, Congressman Mondaire Jones, and Ron Brownstein. I mean, gentlemen, it's, it's, it goes that saying, there is the specific horror and tragedy of what happened at that parade. There's the larger issue as well um, regarding the way in which this notion of who is soft on crime plays around elections and has a very political pointed perspective. And I wonder for the voters, do they know who's right? And how do you approach to try to bridge the gap between the talking point, which feels very visceral, and the facts? Crickets? Exactly. Uh, no, That's here, the point look, I'm no, making. I'll, I'll start. I'm happy as well. to start. Look, criminologists, you know, criminologists, will, I think, more than almost any branch of social science, 
will say that it is extremely difficult to explain the, re- the long-term trends and why crime rises and falls. Um, and when you get down to specific cases like this, um, the causation and the skein of events becomes even more complex because you can make an argument, I think, that this case is in fact uh, a, a, a good uh, justification for moving away from cash bail. This, Why? How does, this, how does that work? Because this person was, under Wisconsin law, you are not allowed to consider the risk that a person poses to the community when setting bail. The only issue you're allowed to consider is whether they will show up. But how does a, that hold make on, sense? Hold on, hold on. It doesn't make sense. A DA, a DA set an obviously inappropriately low bail. $1,000. Terrible. The okay, argument, but, but the remember, argument, hold on. When the DA set the insanely yeah. low bail, $1,000, it was for assault, battery, resisting arrest, and bail jumping. How do you set a low bail for a person who just right. jumped bail? Right, no, the, the, the reform that Barnes proposed, and which has been implemented in other places around the country, would replace cash bail with a risk assessment system in which the risk to the community would explicitly be part of the decision before the judge on whether to let somebody out. There are voices on the left, like the ACLU, that have opposed this change in some places because they think it will lead to more people remaining mm-hmm. in jail. Mm-hmm. If you move from a, an essential system that says, we're going you know, to keep you here unless you can afford to pay, to one that says we are explicitly going to include the degree of risk that you pose in the decision on whether to let you out. Yeah. Now, you know, you can argue about whether that's the right system or not, yeah. but it does, in, in many ways, its impact is the exact opposite of what the ad is suggesting. Well, normally, prosecutors, we consider that. We consider the idea of the risk to the community, flight risk is one of them as well, all sorts of things. And, but so it's interesting to think about the specifics of Wisconsin being different on that notion. New York but is I, barred from considering dangerousness. Well, A that's judge ridiculous. in New York City has to consider what is the likelihood to return to court. Yeah. Um, but if you determine factually that the person is clearly a danger to the community, you are specifically prohibited by law. Just, how, does that 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 how does that make sense? Well, it, it, it doesn't because it, it omits something, and that is under New York state law, a judge, because of an amendment that Kathy Hochul presided over as governor, uh, can now look <laughs> at the seriousness of the harm of the crime for which the person was convicted. Uh, And so that is a very important piece. But, you know, a lot of folks don't understand the purpose of bail. You know, as a former Mm -hmm. prosecutor, the purpose of bail is not to prematurely adjudicate or determine someone's guilt or innocence before they've had their day in court. The point of bail is to ensure that someone shows up again in court at the next court date. I'm glad you clarified that. But if somebody's a danger to the community, they shouldn't be out. I agree with that completely. And so I don't know how we got here. Well, well, let, 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 let's be clear. There and, the federal and, courts have removed bail. It's bail and bond conditions. Let's talk about that. These two things are corollaries, right? Yeah. There's the bail and then there's the bond, meaning whether you'll be held pending your trial for other factors. And that's the nuance mm. in one part. So under New York state law, and I don't purport to be an expert because I'm not a state legislator, but I do know a few things. One is that the frequency of, of criminality is now taken into consideration as well as the seriousness of the harm for which a person has been convicted. And that gets at the analysis that you were talking about when you talk about sort of risk of, of, of doing public harm. Mm-hmm. But let's be clear, before cash bail reform in, in places like New York State and elsewhere, plenty of people who are guilty of mm-hmm. crimes obtain freedom quite click, 
quite quickly mm -hmm. because they of their pay. wealth. Because they could pay. Mostly well, white people. I'm sorry. But, Can I we get to the dirty little secret here? Yeah, yeah, the second one of tonight. Number one, before criminal justice reform, we had the lowest crime in recorded history in New York City, the lowest prison population in a generation, and the fewest number of arrests. After criminal justice reform, shootings doubled. Murder went up by 38%. Prison populations increased. And here is the secret. Wait, can you be specific oh, wait, wait, about wait, wait, what you, wait, how you define wait, reform? Just so the audience knows. What are you defining it, as the reform? It was so much more system. sweeping than just bail reform. It was a series of discovery law changes, bail reform, entire sets of charges that you were no longer allowed to arrest somebody. You could just give them a ticket. So this came in a package in the middle of the night, stuck into a budget bill and passed. But here's the secret. Prior to this, when we had all that low crime and low prison populations, low jail populations, both, 85% of people arrested by the New York City Police Department went to arraignment and walked out the courthouse, either on a low bail that they could afford or released on their own recognizance. So logic dictates that the judge looked at that 15% and said, there's a reason this person needs to go in, and everything was working, and now they've removed any kind of judgment in that regard. Meaning and, that that 15% now is walking out, you think? Yeah, and I mean, to, to pick up on the congressman's point, if you look at places where they eliminated cash bail and things like that, um, they say, you know, 90% of the people return to court, which is true. That means 10% of them don't, which means that's probably that same percentage that the judges were saying, these guys are A, probably not going to come back, and B, based on their records, like our Waukesha guy with his 10 arrests and gun arrests and everything else, will probably be out committing crimes. I don't think, it's fair, to make, I don't think it's fair to have this, the pure cause and effect of right. criminal justice reform means increase in crime. No, that, no, that, no, that's no, pretty reductive. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is criminal justice reform can't be just thrown together by a bunch of defense lawyers and civil rights advocates written into a bill and then passed in the dark of night. Criminal justice reform comes about when you say, we're going to bring everybody to Albany. I got the judges, the prosecutors, the cops, and the lawyers. We're going to hash this out and come up with but something that makes that. sense. They did that. That Just because the prosecutors didn't agree with, with the final outcome didn't yeah. mean that they weren't consulted. If that happened, yep. I want to know where I was that day, because <laughs> that meeting never happened. They should have made sure to invite uh, you. you know, quick, they they didn't invite quick. anybody. I can't, I can't speak in detail on New York State, but the fact is crime rates declined from the early 90s till about 2014. They started going up in 2014, which was before uh, most of, almost any of these criminal justice reforms. 2014 is the pivot point. In New York for, for, City. I'm talking about nationally, for okay, murder nationally. rates, for violent crime rates, 2014 is the pivot point. Started going up then. I don't think criminologists still have an exact uh, explanation of why. And as we talked about last night, in the most detailed study that has been done, that came out recently by seven criminologists, Murder rates went up faster in the cities with hardline traditional prosecutors over the last five years and in those with progressive prosecutors. That doesn't mean that the progressive prosecutors are reducing crime. It means that there are so many factors that go into whether crime rises or falls that it is, I think, very difficult to pinpoint one and say, yes, this is the pivot that is driving things forward. No, not not, not only has it not I been... I would ever go for advice on how to deal with crime as a criminal. Yeah, but, 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 They're fantastic but, at admiring the problem, but... Every solution they ever gave us never really worked. Yeah, but data and research matter, right? And so the Manhattan DA today published something showing that murders in Manhattan have been down year to date 
24 percent. Mm-hmm. Shootings have been down in Manhattan year to date, 18 percent. And that does not mean that people don't have a right to feel and to actually mm-hmm. be safe in New York City. Uh, and I think that uh, more of my progressive colleagues need to speak to and acknowledge that fear that people feel. They feel it in my family. Uh, and, and, and I know they feel it across this city and throughout this country. But I think it's a mistake to, to say that uh, reforms that are meant to create a legal system that is more equitable uh, and that reduces the racial disparities and discrimination and wealth disparities that we see when it comes to cash bail in particular uh, is the cause or are the cause of the uptick in crime that we've seen throughout this country concentrated, frankly, yeah. in eight out of those 10 states that you just mm-hmm. mentioned and states led by Republicans. Yeah, numbers. no, obviously there's couldn't lots of factors. Couldn't agree including, more, yeah, but agreed, the reforms have to make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, I, I think that your argument is super compelling, and I always appreciate when you make it because you've been on the front lines, and so you saw it happen. But, of course, there's all sorts of factors, as you, as you guys point out. Thank you, mm-hmm. gentlemen, very much. Obviously, we'll continue mm-hmm. to have this conversation for the next 13 days. How long is it till election uh, day? 13. 13 days. <laughs> um, okay, 13 now to uh, something possibly a little lighter. If you're worried about your kids... It could be anything. It could be anything. If you're worried about your kids playing video games, we have good news for you. A new study finds that kids who play video games for three or more hours a day may have better cognitive skills than kids who don't play them at all. The teens and tweens at home will be happy. Go wake them up. Tell them about this. We'll tell you about this study next. Did your kids write this? <laughs> Sounds all, like it. I don't have to wake them up. They're up playing video games. <laughs> That's right. You're right. You're up. That's it. For decades, parents have worried about whether video games are rotting their mm-hmm. kids' brains. But a new study finds that gaming may actually help improve cognition and impulse control in kids. Listen to this. It is the largest study of its kind. It looks at data from close to 2,000 kids aged 9 and 10. And it found that children who play games for more than three hours a day, which I think is quite high, had higher levels of activity in parts of the brain associated with attention and memory than those who did not play video games. Okay, so here with us we have former Obama White House Senior Director Nayara Huck and former NFL wide receiver Dante Stallworth, and Ron Brownstein is back with us. Uh, Nayara, uh, as our producer Maria said, was this study commissioned by 12-year-old boys? Like, it was either conducted or commissioned yeah. by 12-year-old boys. No, it was the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. And so I'm stunned because I'm one of the parents who've been saying that it rots your brain and you stop it. And I also just think like socially and for human interaction, it's not good, but maybe it's better than I thought it was. I think games have changed over the years, too, right? And and it's important to separate the biology of what we know versus the cultural changes, too. I mean, we all clearly are now part of a generation where you have to work your thumbs, and that's to society's advantage. But the video games that we grew up with, and I'm dating myself here, were relatively violent and solo operations. But in the pandemic, we saw these younger boys having used the Internet, Twitch, LAN parties, to be able to build these connections and maintain networks at a time when Girls, frankly, in junior high and high school were struggling because their social networks imploded. The challenge, I think, and I'm really curious about exactly what games were studied. Is it something like Minecraft that involves world building and deep thought and almost like spatial organization? Or are these first-person shooter games where boys are largely getting together and often subjecting each other to racist and violent commentary along the way? 
I got to tell you, I mean, I mean, in my case, I, mean, I have a nine-year-old. I think he may have done this study. He's probably like, "Mommy, take <laughs> away my." I give him like an, I give him a thirty-minute limit on his on his game. I, I really do. But I'll tell you, I wondered from the study whether this was self-selecting in some respects. And, and you know, the idea of were people having higher cognitive responses than we were talking about in attention and memory and impulse control because they were already more prone to do so, and then we were drawn to these games, or was it that? And again, it goes back to that cause and effect. Either way. I feel very validated as a mother today. Oh, because yeah. I feel very validated. Because I just, your son does play a lot. You know, there's a lot, lot of judgment from other parents mm. who are like, "Now your kids watch television." I'm like, "Yeah, because mommy's on it." And also, yeah, you play video games. I played them all when I was a kid, not the violent mm-hmm. ones. I'll admit that. But I mean, it's not the worst thing. But yet, competing studies, right, Dante? Between those who say, "No, it's horrible. It rots your brain," and now they're telling you, "Go ahead." Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the more we know, the more research that we have, the more studies that come up, uh, we'll find out more about what these do, and especially long term in these kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when we have all these different studies, it's, it's, I think it's really important to, to be open to these because you never know what what types of cognitive skills these kids are learning at such a young age that can benefit them, uh, you know, later on down the road and, and, and in turn benefit society as well. Here's, here's where we, as parents, and my, my child is sick, so we are still being introduced to this idea of there's some violent action uh, figures as well as Daniel Tiger. We're still in that universe. Yeah, <laughs> happens at the same time. But, but moving on and growing up as parents understanding that is an entirely different universe, right? It is not the Super Nintendo plug it in, plug out. They, there is a life, a social existence, an entire world they are building that as parents, we do need to understand and have insight into. Mm. You know, my kids are a little older, but I remember when they were young and everybody was hopeful that video games was going to make everyone a fighter pilot. You know, it had incredible hand-eye coordination and, and, you know, super quick reactions. So my reaction to this is more like video games are only one small slice of the inputs that shape the interests and aptitudes of kids. And um, it is, you know, it is a significant part of their life. If they're playing it three hours a day, But but there's a lot of other things that that are going to, and I suspect that it will neither be the salvation or the sinking of this generation any more than it was the last. Well, first of all, the only way you can be a top fighter pilot is to know where the movie comes from. Mm. I have the need, the need for speed. Right, You're all right. set from I Top mean, Gun if you, or Maverick. If you watch Top Gun, you've got I mean, it. Or, I mean, that's it. I don't right. know what education the teachers are having. But I will say, I had a parent-teacher conference um, with my kids' teacher. Yes. At, not someone else's teacher, kids' teacher, but my own, <laughs> my own kids' good, teacher. Good. And the statement was, you know, she was complaining about the math, the idea of new math. And they use a lot of computer-based programs, and they don't have instructions on them. And it's the kids have to figure out from themselves what they're being asked and what the next steps are. And I said, well, how can that work? You have these programs. They said, well, look, look at video games. Kids are figuring those out mm. with very little instruction. Mm. They're not like parents who are going through and saying, okay, how do you, which is the controller? What's happening now? It is being repeated in a way as a second layer of how you understand, even in these subject matters in school. Yeah. And as games become more about strategy and teamwork, we are actually finding that there are more girl gamers mm. than they are young yeah. boy gamers. So we write that stereotype that it's only young boys isn't, isn't proving true, but the challenges they're facing absolutely mirror and reflect the challenges we are facing in, in society writ large, except they're facing them in a silo that we're not hearing and we don't have mm. access to to help them process this at a younger age. But I do like what you were saying, and I had forgotten that, that it's not just a solitary experience anymore. And so, as you said, during the COVID, I, my son 
would be connecting with his cousin or with friends, and they'd be together playing mm-hmm. Minecraft or whatever. There are tournaments, right, where oh, large yes. numbers of people oh, yeah. watch, they watch other people playing video games. In a stadium. Yes. Play a video and game. Yes. Some are getting college scholarships for this, by the way. Some are getting a lot of money for these ideas. Yes, they are. The e- e-games? E-sports. Yeah. E-sports. Do you yeah. know, I mean, e-sports is yeah. a huge phenomenon. I, I mean, it's unbelievable. I remember in 2020, by the way, just in 2020, there was a political organization that tried to org- advertise in some of the virtual spaces. I don't remember exactly how they did it, but in these kind of shared communities that people were creating, young people were creating, and they tried to find ways to like put in register to vote, you know, go out to vote Pres- in there. The, the Biden campaign was present in Animal Crossing. Yeah, right. Like that was an active right. investment on their digital side. Mm-hmm. Wow. Are you like, why did I bother having to play football? Why didn't I do this? <laughs> yeah, it seems like Madden. It. Yes, yeah. exactly. Hurt as much. I, I was okay yeah. at Madden too, I, but I think I, I think I did okay at the end. Yeah. I think That's I did good. okay. Well, I, mean, I know a lot about this because of Ms. Pac-Man and Asteroids. Those were the ones that I was playing. You guys have right. never even heard of them, have you? Yeah. You're, you're my generation if you know how to end this. Did it, did it, did it, did it. Wow, this is a sad That's impressive. I'm very touched, though. I'm very, I'm a little emotional about that. That was wonderful. And election day is 13 days away. Don't forget 13. to go to the polls. Mm-hmm. 13. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to go to the polls and don't forget your shopping list. We're going to talk all about election day comfort foods and there's know, a real thing. Songs next. There's actually election day food. <laughs> we'll tell you about it. Well, we know our politics are very polarized in this country, and it feels like, well, Election Day is becoming another sport, Mm -hmm. kind of a Super Bowl, if you will, of politics. So when we're gathering with family and friends to watch the returns, we may need to have some special Election Day comfort foods. At least the New York Times thinks so. And they're out with a list featuring dozens of recipes, everything from French onion mac and cheese to bricklayer-style nachos to empanadas and cookies— and they're, tar- they're talking about this as Election Day food recipes. Okay, so but let me just understand this. Is this basically Super Bowl meets Fourth of July? Like, is that what, what Election Too cold Day for food a barbecue. is? I don't yeah, know. But it's yeah. just like fatty comfort food is what we're going to need on Election Day. Apparently. Right, let's bring back our panel. <laughs> Uh, Ron, obviously you have some sort of election day ritual. What yeah. do you eat you know, on election I, you know, day? I, I was looking at these recipes and I thought they kind of like uh, failed to incorporate the amount of stress that Americans are already feeling on election day. And that would just I be mean, a big this, bottle this of booze. Was, this was just like this was like heart attack on a stick. I mean, like <laughs> most of these uh, most of these recipes and you sort of put them in an environment where people are already under a lot of stress. Right. They kind of you probably needed the booze, except I'm not sure that would be so great around midnight right, either. Right. The, way, the way elections are, are, are going. But there were things like Mexican hot dogs. Dogs, oh, it was... butternut squash pasta with bacon and parmesan, oh my gosh. tater tot casserole. Thank you, Midwest. Mm. It also had Rice Krispie treats, pumpkin blondies. Yeah, I had my favorite, yeah. Southern mac and cheese. There was a Georgian, as in like the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia, cheesy bread thing that actually Ooh, looked really that does good. Look good. But guys, come on. There's, oh, there's one answer for this. On any day, it works. Nachos. That is the I answer. It, yes. I think it made it. Right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, for yeah. comfort food, for the Super Bowl, for any day, nachos. What day aren't nachos right for? Dante's it? laughing that any of this is Super Bowl. <laughs> no, I actually, I actually see the similarities. I think the midterms are essentially like the playoffs, the lead up 
to the presidential mm-hmm. election, and the presidential election is like the Super Bowl. But, so, but we could only hope that America writ large would pay attention and participate right. and come together around elections okay, as a ritual. People voted in 2020, which is approximately how many people watched the it's Super like, Bowl, isn't it? Is that right? Well, it's the Super Bowl, right? Isn't that right? I'm just, I don't, I'm just, See? I'm just thinking that. Hilarious. Of my head. 160 million people voted. I think the Super. We should look it up here. Somebody grabbed their phone. Yeah, I think the it. Super Bowl is like 160. And you, because we always used to say that more people watched the Super Bowl right, than voted. And I think it actually kind of converged. But that was the comparison point. That was. I remember saying that. When it came to the January 6th committee. Remember, there was a conversation on how many people. But this also tells you, when they're eating for the Super Bowl, Dante, right? It's like the idea of the fraternization. It's the idea of excited. um, It's the commercials at times. No offense as well. This is also about anxiety, this yes. is anxiety eating they're talking about for this, right? Yeah, yeah, especially when, when you don't know the outcome, right? Like, we, we go into some elections and we, we kind of think that, oh, this person's definitely going to win or my person's definitely going to win. But then it doesn't happen. And then it doesn't happen and the comfort food is there to, 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 to reel you back into reality. But this says 99 million. So there you go. More people. Million. More people voted. It may be dropping also. The Super Bowl oh. used to be over 100 million. Yeah. But, I, but I love the idea of, you know, like this ritual and coming together. But I will say this is there's a deep history to this. 1771. So even before, you know, everything came together as a country, election cake was a thing. Oh, and what is it? It is a yeasty cake yes. with spices and nuts to help preserve it. And it was started in Connecticut and shared with people who were coming to town for the vote count. So, you know, food is a ritual thing. It's how we come together. But to Ron's point, Wait, I girl, will say... you lost me at yeasty cake. <laughs> I'm sorry. Which, which I think is like a donut-y <laughs> kind of yeasty cake thing. Why not? Uh, but to Ron's point... It sounds like a great number of participation mm-hmm. in the election, but that's still, for developing world, we rank 30 mm-hmm. out of 35 for participation. So mm-hmm. the number of people who could be voting and participating, mm-hmm. like 20%, or like, eh, it just mm-hmm. wasn't very important this time. Again, I think nachos could only help. <laughs> um, thank you. By the way, Super Bowls were 110 to 115, usually. That's what they historically were. Okay. So, and, and now it's like everything else on, you know, just being fractionated. Yeah, we've learned audience. a lot of fun facts here exactly. today. Thank you all very much. All right, it's time for you to sound <laughs> off. We'll read your tweets next. Okay, it's time to sound off. Here's what viewers are saying tonight. Uh, this says, I voted today. I am a proud Democrat. I voted for Democrats, independents, and Republicans alike. I vote on character and honesty. Not one person or one party can fix the problems we have. It's going to take a collective people. Mm. Okay. I appreciate that. Look, other one says tacos and CNN. There's no better combination. You know what? I agree, but you like the nachos. I mean, no, tacos, I like nachos, that combination. That's a delicious. Here's one I think directed at me or champagne, Allie. <laughs> That's a good one. That's well, a good well, one. Why not champagne and nachos? Well, it depends on maybe if you are in a festive mood to celebrate the champagne, right? And then you also, of course, there's one. Um, Oh. You know where to find us, everyone, at the Lara Coates and Allison. Are you knighting us right now? There was, I think where everyone's, oh, no, I don't want to get out of it. There was one person who was laughing about that Mario soundtrack got them. Oh, yes, I, I heard that. Somebody was saying that they loved that. that. <laughs> Hold on, there's one more that I want to read, too. A great red wine, well-aged cheese, crackers and grapes. Your election coverage is one of the best, mm. and I am Canadian. Okay. I love, I love the, A, there you go at the end of it, if you're Canadian. Oh, one more, it's, I, it's I'm a Jim Crow baby. Intimidation won't work with me. I will vote with pride, not fear. 
Okay, now you can goodnight us. Now we'll goodnight us, everyone. You know where to find us at the Larcos, Allison Camerata. I'm going to get nachos. Thanks for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.